Welcome to church. We're so glad that you guys are here. My name is Russ. I have the honor of being the senior pastor here at Four Points. If it's your first time here, what a great time to be joining us. Let me grab this really quick for me. We are in a series called Rise of the King, and we started all the way back in the Old Testament uh, looking at a desire and a request that was misplaced but genuine from the nation of Israel. They understood as a nation that they needed stability from something that they couldn't give themselves, so they requested that God would give them a king. Instead of God being their authority, they would have an authority under that authority that would reign and rule as a king over them. They came not requesting this from God, but demanding it of God. You and I are invited and encouraged to come before God with every petition and request that we have in our heart. He even calls us in 1 Thessalonians in two simple words to pray continually, to pray constantly. Simply put, God cares about what's going on in your life. He wants, if it's a matter of your heart, to be a matter that's laid before his hands and his feet. However, we do not come demanding the ways in which God answers, hears, and moves in that prayer. Instead, we defer, trusting that he is trustworthy of the pain, trustworthy of the waiting, trustworthy of the request that we have laid before him. Israel didn't want to wait. God gave them what, he, what they desired. And oftentimes, this is a form of the wrath of God in our life. Sometimes you and I set out, apart from God, to desire to do great things and make something of ourselves, thinking that it would give us lasting peace and satisfaction. But one of the ways that God will often get our attention is he'll allow us to have all the fruits of our effort and labor to understand that apart from God, no thing can please and satisfy and bring security in the way that only the presence of God can bring in our lives. What you need more than any gift under a tree, what you need more than anything or any promotion or any addition to your life is a relationship and the presence and the spirit of God at work changing, transforming, and leading you into the future that you have no control over as you walk into it. So king after king rises and falls. There were some kings that reigned all of seven days and some kings that reigned for long periods of time until we get to Josiah's third son who reigned as king over a split and divided kingdom kingdom named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord as many of the kings prior to him had done. And in the middle of that, uh, God essentially leads them off into captivity into Babylon. Zedekiah goes blind with no sons after seeing all of his sons uh, killed before him in the presence of God. This is a brutal and a broken story that we see in the history of the nation of Israel. There, though, God was faithful. He raised up people that he worked and moved through and in. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in the far-off place served and worshiped God and didn't bow down to Neb or the idol that had been built. You have David, who prayed frequently and daily, even if it meant he got thrown into a lion's den. In the fire of persecution and uncertainty, there were a few that God used that pressure to make something great out of in his story. Then you get a guy named Nehemiah that comes in Old Testament history. Yes, I'm giving you all of Old Testament history because we're going to the New Testament today in Luke chapter 1. And Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall that had been torn down that gave Jerusalem a sense of security. Some people tried to talk him out of it, but he refused to get off the wall because he had a sacred task and he couldn't fight battles that he wasn't created to fight. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Now, all of this was in anticipation and waiting of a king that was going to come that would establish a reign and rule that would not be done away with. Isaiah prophesied about this 900 years before we ever see mention of Christ breaking into history and time. And he talked about the reign, rule, and the governance of the coming king and how when he came, he would set right what was wrong. And it wouldn't be set right for a season or a decade or a generation, but for all generations to come thereafter. And then we get to the last book of the Old Testament. 
And you've got a people that have consistently done this dance of drawing close to God and then drawing away from God. When they need something and they're broken and life breaks down and their paychecks aren't coming in their bank account, they draw close to God. But then as soon as they get things stable again, they draw away from God and brokenness and pain follow. And so Malachi is the last words that God will utter for 400 years. The last word in the book of Malachi is the word curse. For 400 years, there's this curse of darkness. There's promises that God has made, but they will only wait on them, and many of them, generation after generation, stand and see them unfulfilled. It's darkness until John writes in John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was God in the beginning. And then he brings in these famous words and this powerful introduction where he says, the light has shone and the darkness cannot overcome it. See, that was the coming light that was promised, but that's not where they were in history. They were in a season of waiting, and waiting is difficult, especially if you want to do it faithfully. Waiting and being faithful is not easy, but waiting is an essential part of the Christian Life And if you're not careful, your waiting can draw you away from an expectancy on the presence and active work of God in your life, which is what we find in Luke chapter 1, and it's the story I want to talk to you about today. We're introduced to some unique characters, but as you're flipping to Luke 1, let me give you some of the promises that God gives before 400 years of waiting in this last book of the Old Testament called Malachi. In Malachi, it's a four-chapter book. He's not mentioned in the book at all, so we don't know his origin story. There's no background, no, there's no detail into the kind of person he was. All we know is that the name Malachi means my messenger. And so my messenger comes and he gives some last words before this waiting season begins. And in those words there's a lot of detail, a lot of prophecy. I by nature am a skeptic. I don't believe anybody at face value. I've been here 37 years and I've seen many people who were good people lie to me. So I've just learned to take what everybody says with a grain of salt. I've learned to have, though, an insane amount of reliability on the Word of God. I trust in the Word of God. I believe it's truthful in every, as uh, Matthew would say, every jot and tittle, that every bit of it is good and good for correcting and reproving. It's good to build a life on and stand on. It's the rock that God has given us in His Word so that we would know the Word of God, that we could be the people of God, that we could know the character of God, and we would grow in our trust of God moving forward. Forward. And so in uh, Malachi, there's some prophecy that comes that God calls his shot in advance. Before the 400-year period comes to an end, God says this is what that period, that messianic coming age would be like. Look, I'm sending my messenger, chapter 3, verse 1, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Now, two things there. One, there will be a forerunner before Jesus. He will be uh, like Elijah, have the spirit of Elijah that will be upon him, and he will prepare the way. Anybody know who that is biblically? John the Baptist. Good. Half of y'all went to Sunday school. Awesome. So John the Baptist would prepare the way. He would be the the voice crying out in the wilderness with the message of, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. So the promise was there would be a forerunner, someone that comes before Jesus that would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He will prepare the way, and then the Lord you are seeking suddenly will come to his temple. And that's a key word. And the reason it's a key word is that when God moves, it often is sudden. There's waiting, and there's delaying, and you don't think it's ever going to happen, and then there's a, uh, you let down your guard, and then suddenly Jesus tells the story of the wedding party. In the New Testament, where he talks about many who weren't prepared, and then suddenly the bridegroom comes, and they weren't ready to receive him. So we know that there's going to be a period of waiting, but then suddenly 
The narrative is going to turn. The messianic age is going to come. Jesus is going to fulfill all of the prophecies that are laid out for him in the Old Testament in the way he was born, in the way that he would live, in the death that he would die, in the resurrection that he would bring for hope and restoration for all those who are lost in sin. Oh, I'm preaching good. Okay, here we go. The Lord your God you are seeking. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. So here's the deal. Many aren't seeking God, but their souls seek stability. Many in Israel didn't seek God, but their souls sought after an authority that was worthy of their trust and worthy of their hope, that they could take a breath in and find peace under their authority. So the Lord you are seeking, this Prince of Peace, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, will suddenly come to his temple. And then the messenger, when he comes of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming. You can bank on it, you can bet on it, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Verse 2, look at what it goes on to say. But who will be able to stand? I mean, he's righteous and holy, and, and we, by nature, have sinned and walked away from God. I mean, who, who can stand before God? And you may think, well, I'm a good person, and I'm a righteous person, and I've done good things my whole life. I've not done the bad things that get you into prison. And just because you didn't find yourself in earth in time's prison doesn't mean that you stand justified before God and accepted and received. Who can stand before God? It's a great question to consider. Who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. There's three terms the Old Testament uses to describe the cleansing work of God. There's the blood that's spoken of. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see blood sacrifice done consistently to make payment for sins. There's a refining fire that comes to burn away all of the extra stuff that we attach to our religious acts and works that isn't of God. And then there's this cleansing of soap. Jesus walks into the temple in the New Testament, and he sees a bunch of people who have come to bargain with God but not to depend on God. They want to pay God for their sin, but they don't want to repent and walk away from their sin. So he turns the tables over in that place. He cleanses the temple. And it was prophesied in verse 3. Look at what it goes on to say. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, this tribe of people that are meant to be the representatives of God, that serve as an under-shepherd of God, that represent God to the people well, teach, instruct, and correct the people well. But instead, they had drifted into many of these seats of prestige and corruption whenever Jesus comes, which is why there was so much butting of heads between Jesus and them, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then, once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. Verse 5 goes on to say this, At that time, I will put you on trial. Let me just remind you, some of you have the tattoo, only God can judge me. He will. He will. And the good news is, everything that you have been can be accounted to the blood of Christ, and that is all you need to stand justified in the end. Here's the bad news. Apart from the blood of Christ, you justly stand condemned before God. Merry Christmas. <laughs> no one can stand. You may have done moments of good work, but the idea and the creation and the way that you were created was not so that you would momentarily do good things so that you could then have a sense of security. It's that you would understand that there is a way, there is a righteous one, his name is Jesus, and he was blameless, spotless, and perfect, which is why he was an acceptable sacrifice. And in order for God to overlook your sin and receive you apart from the blood of Jesus would mean to demean the value of the sacrifice of what Jesus gave for you in his very life that he laid down. 
At that time, I'll put you on trial. I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. So we're like, whoo, I was good at, for the first two parts. Part three got me. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, Ebenezer, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me. The symptoms are listed above. The root problem is a lack of fear. Now, when you read fear in the Bible, let me be clear, it's not speaking of terror fear, it's speaking of reverential fear. How many of you have been in a place that required, or it just naturally pulled from you a reverence in recognition of where you were? It may have been a battlefield that you stood on where a lot of history had taken place. I remember the first time in junior high when I went to the tomb of the unknown soldier, and I watched those guys march. You've never seen middle schoolers more quiet than in that place. There's just this recognition that something of significance has happened there, and there's a reverent posture that's taken as a result of that. Well, we serve a God who sees all, knows all, and is at work in all. And in light of that, there should be a reverence within the way that we live, a reverence within the way that we act. Though we are tempted by sin, we should know that God is not absent from any moment in our life. Therefore, we do not have to walk into that sin. So there should be a reverence, an acknowledgement that we want to live honoring God because he's not absent, he's present. Does this make sense? And when you lose sight of that reverence before God, you slide into sin in various ways and in various kinds. Are you tracking with me? So it's lack of fear of the Lord that leads us in our waiting to a drifting. And then if you go over on that day, it'll be a day of judgment when Christ comes back, but it also speaks of this coming day, which will be a day of celebration in chapter four for those who are in Christ. But for you who fear, who revere the name of God, the son of righteousness will rise. In Luke, the text we're looking at today, it ends, we're not going to get there obviously because it's verse 74, but at the end of Luke 1, it says the sun has risen on us. So we're going into a season of darkness, but there will be a sunrise that will come where God will not be done. So those who fear my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. And all the Pentecostal people said, (laughs) all the Baptists said, oh no. Okay, Uh, Luke chapter 1. That's a funny joke. I don't care who you are. If you can't laugh at that, it's all all downhill from here. Luke chapter 1. We are going to be introduced to two two common people who are going to be called to an uncommon purpose in God's story. I should probably look at my notes. Therefore, we can stay on top. I love this story, and I've got lots of nerdy Bible facts that I've spent weeks on. I want to share some of them with you, and I don't want to keep you here for a six-hour sermon. Non-Baptist and Pentecostal, and everybody agreed and said, Amen. All right, Luke 1, uh, verses 5 to 7, it says this. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abiha, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commands and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. God has this way of taking forgotten, blend-in-the-crowd, common people and using them to do something unique. Now, the, the point of me saying that is not to say that if you are talented and have gifts that you are going to be less used by God, but 
is to say to those of you who are talented that there's no room for arrogance in thinking that your gifts are of need of God, that he can't take someone common and do something uncommon with them. So no matter how talented or untalented you think you are, we are to be submitted and humble to God, and it's the humble who, in their humility, are able to be used by God for great things. So a common country preacher named Zechariah is the first person that we're introduced to in the story. It says he was a priest named Zechariah and we're told a few things. He was a member of the priestly order of Abiha. So Zechariah belonged to one of 24 divisions of priests that totaled around 8,000 priests in total in Palestine. The numbers matter for the context of the story, I promise. So there's around 8,000 preachers. It's like being in, in the south. It's like every third person is a preacher. Hey, what do you do for a living? I work at Cryvac. What do you do for a living? I'm a preacher. Okay, what do you do for a living? I work at Exactus. What do you do for a living? I'm a preacher. Okay, like, like everywhere I go right now, it's like every third person. I'm trying to find people that are like, I hate Christians. I'm like, good, we can talk. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. <laughs> like, I'm sick of like, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I'm a preacher. Okay. Um, now, Zechariah, one of 8,000, he's in the division of Abiha, which was one of the uh, 24 divisions of priests that were there. There were likely around 300 priests in his division, uh, and so he's one of 300. He would serve two weeks out of the year in the temple, okay? So his division, the group of 300 priests, they, they would go and have a Bible conference at the temple twice a year. And for one week, they would serve in the temple, and then they would go back to where they lived uh, and wherever they interacted. Uh, Zechariah's name in Hebrew, this is a good fact, is the Lord has remembered. It literally means the Lord has remembered. It's been 400 years, but the Lord has remembered. And God's going to use that guy, that name, that country preacher that's common and in the crowd of 8,000, of 300, and he's going to do this significant thing through in the story. Now, we're also brought in to the fact of it. In fact, he has a wife, and his wife's name is Elizabeth. She's a preacher's kid and a preacher's wife. She's a, PK, she's a double PK. Preacher's kid, pastor's wife. Doesn't work, not double PK. Preacher's kid, preacher's wife. She was of the lineage of Aaron, the text tells us. So she was born into a lineage that's been faithful. She carried the same name as Aaron's wife in the Old Testament, which was a common practice, as many of you have named your kids Jonah or, you know, um, most of us don't name our kids Jezebel, but, you know, biblical names, stuff like that. Uh, she was named in a biblical name that spoke to a biblical heritage and a desire for that heritage to continue not in spite of her, but through her. So Elizabeth, the preacher's kid and the preacher's wife, Zechariah, the country preacher, the common guy that's in the crowd, and we're told in verse 6 that collectively the two of them are people of high character. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. Now, let me be very clear. This doesn't mean that they weren't in need of a Savior to forgive them of their sins. It means that they were not intentionally seeking to break God's law and lived a repentant life before God whenever they found themselves being in sin or having done so. So it's not that they were perfected in and of themselves. They were going to be perfected by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, and they were living faithfully walking with God. There's a big difference in your life between two kinds of sin, sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of omission is you're just living your life trying to honor God, not seeking to dishonor God, and you stumble into something that is sin, and in hindsight, by the good grace of a friend that brings it to your attention or the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you come to realize that what you did was sinful, not helpful, dishonoring to God, and then you repent. That's omission. I'm not, as your pastor, concerned about those kinds of sins. I am concerned about sins of commission. That is, you know it's wrong and you make excuses for it and keep doing it anyway. 
What's plaguing our church, what's plaguing our family, what's plaguing our community, it's not sin of omission, it's sin of commission. We know it's wrong and we don't repent. We sit in our seat, act like we're fine, act like it's good. No, commission, when you know it's wrong, you repent. It's the normal Christian life. They were people of high character, verse 6 tells us. On top of that, we're told that they have real pain. So they were righteous, but they had real pain. And many of you, you are living a righteous, good life. You're wanting to honor God, yet you still have real pain. And that's part of the mystery. It's part of the frustration of this side of eternity. Good people have terrible things that happen to them on this side of eternity. You can sow righteous seed and good works and it all goes awry. That is the broken nature of this broken kingdom that God is doing away with in the inauguration and the second coming of his son, which will bring an end to time and a beginning of this beautiful kingdom that we all long for, where death is done away with and cast into the lake of fire, where sin is done away with and cast away, where brokenness and this relational strife and this hard-heartedness is done away with, and we enjoy God together around the throne forever, declaring him king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, I can't wait for that day. How I long to sing the hymn of heaven when death is gone. Oh, man, let that come. Let that day come. So we are told they have real pain. What's their pain? Verse 7, look at it with me. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. Now, infertility in any culture is a heavy burden to bear. We look at each other differently and make judgments about each other, even in the types of pregnancy when you get pregnant. Like if you have a baby by natural means, there's sometimes a stigma that comes with that because you did it without drugs, and then there's some that use drugs, and woohoo, and then there's some that, that don't have it by that natural means, and they have a cesarean section or a C-section, and there's all sorts of stigmas that are attached to that kind of stuff. So even if you get pregnant, there's stigmas that are attached to it because what we're really good at doing is judging people, demeaning them, and making them feel bad about themselves. So it's a stigma everywhere, but in Hebrew culture, this was a marker of someone being unrighteous in your life. I mean, it it was a stigma that comes out of Leviticus chapter 20 that it was believed that if you uh, had had sinned or wronged, it was why you would be barren. It was this same idea that you see carry over into other people's uh, pains and hurts and hang-ups in the New Testament. I mean, you've got the guy who's uh, mute and blind, and the disciples come and they ask, I'm getting it wrong, but the disciples come and ask when one of them is impaired, he asks, they ask, whose sin, his father's or his? What's Jesus' answer? It's none of their sin. It's this broken kingdom that I've come to deal with. It's the brokenness of this side of eternity. Don't, don't equate the fact that you have real pain, meaning you're unrighteous, or that God's angry, or that God's uh, getting back at you. God desires grace for you, not wrath for you. We're in a season of common grace where he is wooing and drawing you by his Holy Spirit through his word to repentance so that you would live the abundant life that he's got for you in the spirit. But she has real pain. He has real pain because they're barren, and the text tells us they're old. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, there's lots of stories of people that have this similar pain. In similar story, there's this woman named Hagar who looks down on Sarah and her infertility. And Sarah felt shame and bitterness and jealousy. You can find that in Genesis chapter 16, verse 4. Leah called her barrenness an affliction in Genesis chapter 29, verse 32. Hannah wept for years bitterly over her infertility in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Elizabeth, the woman mentioned in this story, calls her barrenness later in this chapter a reproach that God takes from her. This is a real hurt. 
It's a real pain. Now, why bring up this pain? Why bring up this hurt? Well, God's doing something in it that's not been seen yet. They've waited a lifetime for this to change. But nonetheless, though, they have no expectancy that God's going to do anything. And it's just that thing that's an asterisk or a side note that they don't like to talk about. And they don't want the preacher to get their hopes up about anymore. They just leave it there because, you know, case sarah, sarah, in eternity, God will do something with it. But not now. Not today. And, and, and here's, here's my concern. It is possible to have a form of Christianity that understands that everything will be made right in the end and look a whole lot like Mary and Martha when Lazarus has died in time. I know that one day, God, you'll deal with death. And God's like, no, I, I am the resurrection and the life. That's today. I determine what day. And I say, Today, and I, I know this makes us nervous, especially the more Baptist reform leaning you are, you know. I like to say that I am a, uh, a continuationist with a seatbelt. Okay? I love the Word of God, but I do not believe that it has eliminated the power and the presence of God from being at work around us. If you don't believe me, come to Africa with me. We'll have some fun. Here's my point. God is worthy, not of your expectation of his faithfulness and work in the future of your pain, but he's worthy of the hope that he will do something with your pain today. He's worthy of expectation that he can do something with the unchanged thing, the unchanged pain today in your life. Not tomorrow. Today, like, like he's worthy of that posture. I'm not telling you it's coming today. I'm not going to sit up here and be like, 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 nope, none of that junk. That's late night Christian TV. Real hope and a real God who really cares, who really hears your cries, who really sees your pain, who cares about you, loves you, and is a good father that gives good gifts. My point is this. God is always aware. God is always good. And instead of lingering in your waiting from God, you can draw toward God in your waiting. Instead of walking from God in your waiting, you can draw to God in your waiting. Now that's not the story of what we're going to see with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look at what it goes on to say. One day, while he was on one of those one week, two week stints of duty, one week stints twice a year, Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So out of 300, the lots cast for him at the evening sacrifice to go and do this sacred duty, to offer and burn incense as the evening sacrifice was taking place and the people were praying in the court for their prayers to be heard. Some of those prayers were of the restoration of Israel. Some of those prayers were individual hurts, habits, hangups, and pains. And they're offering those prayers outside, and he's going to get the opportunity to go into the priestly court where as he walked in that night, he would see the Holy of Holies, whose days were numbered, because Jesus was coming, and it would be torn from the top to the bottom, and the presence of God would not be concealed from the people of God, but it would be filling the people of God, empowering the people of God. So he would see this holy of holies. He would see the table of showbread and the lampstands and all of these symbols that had marked moments where God had powerfully and palpably moved in the history of Israel. And he would get to, as they're praying, as the sacrifice is being made, offer this incense offering. And some of you are like, well, what's the big deal? You only get to do it once. The Mishnah, which is a book on Jewish living, says that if you are selected, you only get selected once. 
God is always on time. You are not lost in a sea of faces. You may be one in 300 or one in 8,000, but at the right time, in the right place, God has a way of bringing about his purpose, his plan, in which it brings sense to the pain and glory to his name in light of eternity. You can trust God in your waiting. You can have an expectancy of God even though you've yet to see him move in your pain. And so he's chosen. He's chosen from the temple crowd to offer this sacrifice of incense that would wrap the prayers that were being prayed with the aroma that would be sweet so that God would hear the prayers. This was the Jewish belief. Now, while Zechariah, verse 11, was in, was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. This is a common response when angels show up in the Bible. Most people are not like, oh, precious moments. They're like, oh, that wasn't precious. I need to go change my pants. Like, that's common. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand because we're all here, or we're just lying. How many of you have prayed and after a season thought, I'm not heard? See, it's still a desire of the heart. But instead of continuing to put it before God for him to transform it or fulfill it, you just put it on the side. Hmm. Because you no longer trust your pain in the hands of God. So I don't want to lay it before God because he's not answered it. I've already asked God, but I've not seen him move in it, so it must not be on his agenda. So instead of continuing to pester God with what's really going on and what's really hurting me, I'm instead going to put that to the side and kind of have this plastic faith that needs a PR person to come and explain away all the pain that God has not answered and done away with. Now, let me be very clear. God does not owe you a move in the way that you think he should move. In fact, God often will move in uncommon ways to answer common prayers. So don't limit God in the way that he answers your prayers. And it always makes sense to you, even when it doesn't make sense to others, and how God fulfills and comes through on his promise as a faithful and loving father. But as Zechariah is standing in the temple offering the sacrifice, he hears this angel who appears to him that says, the Lord has heard your prayer. What do you think that he's been praying about? Uh, the text says, look at what it goes on to say. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord, and he must never touch wine or alcohol. or the, Okay, okay. So many of us would think, he obviously went back, and maybe for the last time or for the hundredth time or the millionth time, he's like, Lord, my wife and I, though we are advanced in age, are barren. And maybe he put some King James on it. So, Father, if you would giveth us the blesseth, like, like just, just he, whatever. But many of us think that's, that's what he was offering. He was praying about the, probably not. He's probably stopped praying about barrenness. He's probably assumed that God just doesn't have an answer for that anymore or doesn't want to move in it. Instead, as his religious duty would be, he showed up to pray that God would restore the nation of Israel, that God would bring his Messiah to bring the Messianic period into view. Here's what's going on. Zechariah never equated that his pain had a bigger purpose. That maybe the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer was an answer to an entire nation's prayer 
that was bringing about a season that God was bringing into pass where the Messiah would come and take away all of the trespasses of the entire world. You see, he didn't believe, and I have reason to believe this, he didn't believe that God would answer his prayers to fill his arms with the child. And probably, religiously, though he prayed the prayer, he didn't believe in his lifetime he would see the Messiah come. He was present, but not expectant. Religious, but not actually believing that God was at work in the religion. And this is where a lot of people in the South are, aren't they? You're here, but did you really expect God to meet with you in his word and change your life and transform you? Did you really expect the Holy Spirit to come and refresh you and guide you and supply you with everything you need for every good work that he has called you to next week? I mean, how many of you came in here going, man, God's about to show up and do great work in the presence of his people as the word of God goes out, the timeless, unchanging, faithful rock of his word? Let me go ahead and help you out. Most of us didn't come in here expecting that. We came in here going, man, God should be impressed that we made it. but not expectant for a move of God to take place in our life. You see, Zechariah was religious, but he wasn't expectant. And in the middle of this, he says to him, you're gonna have a son named John, and he's a bigger player in this entire story than you ever dreamed because John's name means, in uh, Hebrew, God has been gracious. The Lord has remembered Zechariah, and God has been gracious. So as that prayer was offered The angel stands there and says 400 years is coming to an end and the Messiah is coming. Hmm. But he didn't expect God to show up. A priest should be a heavenly example. Uh, A priest should should expect heavenly things in the temple. We should have an expectation that God is present even when we haven't seen the change that we had hoped for. But as I would like to put it in verse 18, we learn that Zechariah was a religious atheist. He was religious but not believing. He was faithful to the task but not faithful to the presence of God or expecting that God would intervene in his life. Now we're told, just a quick note, that John, this is for free, you will have a great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 14, verse 15, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or alcohol at drinks. That means he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart. There were freedoms that others would have that he wouldn't have because of the call that's on his life. And I just want to submit to some of you, this is free, didn't throw it in first service, like I should say it right now, that for many of you, there are freedoms that other people have that you're not going to have because of your calling. And you just got to embrace the fact that you can't live like everybody else when God has called you to the unique thing that he has called you to do. So not everything that is permissible is profitable for you to the witness that God has called you to, to the path that God has called you to go down. And just because it's a freedom for some, it may not be a freedom for you. Don't live by law, live by the Spirit. Let the Spirit bring conviction and call you to abstain when appropriate from things that other people can uh, partake in and vice versa. This is the beauty of the Christian life. The law has been fulfilled and we now live by the Spirit. Now verse 18, let me get back to my point. That was free. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure that this will happen? I don't know. I'm an angel. (laughs) I mean, this is what goes in my mind. Like, you're in the temple. (laughs) Near the holy of holies. God's done it before. You remember all the Bible? Like, in order for Zechariah to be a priest, he had memorized the Old Testament. That means he's familiar with the whole Sarah Hagar story. Which is probably why Elizabeth wasn't like, hey, you know, I got a friend. That didn't go so well. He's familiar with Hannah's cries in the temple. 
I don't know, Zechariah, maybe you should believe because of that. Look at what Gabriel says to him. Then the angel said, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. I have seen him on his throne with the seraphim and angel encircling him with praise. And I'm here to tell you, God is not done. God is at work. Now you've disbelieved with your mouth, verse 20. Since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until this child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. At the proper time. Time. My wife, she was really good looking, so I followed her all over this country with a group called Joyful Sound at every Backwoods Baptist church you've ever been to when we were in college. And I heard the same routine 465 times, and I did it because I love you. <laughs> and at every one of those performances, there was this one song that they would sing where they would get a little bit Pentecostal with it, and they'd go, He's an on time God. Yes, He is. And then they'd join in. He's an on-time God, yes, he is. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time because he's an on-time God, yes, he is. Okay, okay, here's my, here's my, thank you, thank you. More, more. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, the point, the point is God's ways are not your ways, his time's not your time. The point is you in that should not have this careless, caserasera attitude about the move of God. You, in spite of it not being the time yet, should be found expectant until the time comes. And that's what I'm trying to drive home to you today. God is worthy of you waiting in expectancy. Not for eternity, but with expectancy that he can move today. And that's what I've come to confront, the bully that's been bullying you away from faith. The pain that you don't want to bring before God or bring up anymore. Not because this, I'm, I'm not here telling you, it's going to change. I don't know. I'm not God. Here's what I know. He's worthy of your hope in your waiting. He's worthy of your belief in the unseen. And my concern as a under-shepherd of him is that he would find us individually and as his church unexpected on the quick day of his return when he comes. Number one thing Jesus says about his second coming? Quickly. Behold, I am coming quickly. You see it in Revelation. You see it in Acts with the angel's words to the disciples after Jesus ascends. Quickly. The other word, unexpectedly. So my, my challenge, my prayer is that you would be found expectant when he quickly and unexpectedly comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Our worship team's gonna come. They're gonna lead us in a time of response. Um, as they're coming, there's a text that I cut out, and I wanna close and give you an invitation to respond off of it. Psalm chapter 27, it says this, and I love this because it challenges a lot of the belief for eternity that we don't hold on to today. It says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in eternity. Later. No. In the land of the living. Has, has he seen the goodness of the Lord and what he's going through? No. But what does he believe? He will see God's goodness in his life. Now. Today. So here's the invitation. Wait on the Lord.
I said in first service, he's worthy of your weight. He's worthy of your weight. And that's the Christmas season. They were waiting, and they were looking for a king that would come and set up a, a, a powerful kingdom. But he came as a lamb because they needed a lamb before they could ever have a king. They needed a lamb more than they needed an army. So the lamb comes, and no one knows. No one sees. No one discovers it. But we, in his second coming, we wait on the Lord. We're of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So, waiting doesn't mean that you don't put it before him. Waiting doesn't mean that you're silent about it. Waiting doesn't mean that the pain's not real. Waiting means that he's worth the expectation and the hope in the unseen. So I just want to invite you, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you do not know Jesus, we'd invite you to come and learn about the gospel and let us walk you through what it means to profess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was the substitutionary atonement you needed to make payment for all your sin. And in his resurrection, there is hope for you to have hope in eternal life based on the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you've never given your life to him, and if you've never entrusted in his his gospel, this is a great day and a great moment of salvation for you to do so. Our prayer team will be here. We'd love to pray with you. They'll also be in the back. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.